The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Many first-time authors think that all they need to do is write a book, upload it to Amazon, and voila, the readers will come flocking. Or they write the book and mail it to an agent and everything else after that is gravy. This is not the case. And the reality is that the journey of writing and publishing a book is a long and arduous one. And in my experience, it takes most authors 5 to 15 years to find success, and uh, typically around 10 years before they see any success, and sometimes a lot longer than that. So what does it take to succeed in this business of publishing? Well, I believe it's two qualities, patience and endurance. I know that's not what you want to hear, but that's how it works. And today we have a very special guest who's going to talk to us about how to persist in this writing journey and how to develop patience and endurance in your writing. He's a bivocational pastor and founder of Brent Oak Church. Uh, he also hosts the weekly Pastor Writer podcast and he, where he interviews pastors, authors on writing, reading, and the Christian life. And Chase Replogle, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. It's an honor. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, I mean it when I say I listen to every episode every week when they come out. And so uh, really grateful for so much of the work you've done and an opportunity to be on the show myself. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have you back, and uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I love uh, what you're doing. And real quick before we get onto the topic, I want to point this out as a good example of how to do a good podcast, where you have a really narrow focus, right? It's not just a podcast on writing. It's a p- podcast on pastors writing. And yet, if you're a pastor who's wanting to write, this is exactly the podcast for you. And you have people who listen to your show who aren't pastors. I I, I might admit to have having listened to a few episodes myself, even though I don't pastor anyone. So I, I love that model. I think it's very reproducible and something really every author should think about. Yeah, it's also, um, it was a great way to start as well, because it was so niche. It was really easy to find who the listener was. And I've been, you know, I've been doing the show three years now, and the show has, has expanded. You know, I'm able to do some broader conversations and broader topics. And you're right, there's a lot of people. It's funny, they'll they'll email me and say, almost like they feel guilty. Uh, uh, I listen to the podcast, even though I'm not really a pastor writer, <laughs> you know. And so it's, uh, as I do often, you know, you listen to all sorts of things. And uh, it was a, a great way to get started and uh, been a a lot of fun building an audience around the show. Be faithful in the little things, and then you're giving greater things. It's uh, not a revolutionary marketing tactic, but one that we often ignore. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your writing journey, because you didn't start off as a podcaster. You, did you start off as a pastor and then got into writing, or was it the other way around? No, yeah, I started off as a pastor. Um, honestly, my writing has flowed a little bit out of the pastoral work. I uh, I, I always thought of myself as a, a, a speaker. I actually uh, will sometimes tell the story when I was in eighth grade, I turned in a journalist. We had a, 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 a digital market or media class in eighth grade, which was really kind of ahead of its time. And I got assigned to cover a, a funeral. Uh, the governor, sitting governor in our state had died in a tragic plane crash. And I got picked to go write the article on it. And I wrote it and got the paper turned back into me. And it said two models 
maudlin at the top, and I had no idea what that word meant. So the teacher said, <laughs> "Look it up in a dictionary." And I've I've always said I trust that she had a a nicer dictionary than mine. But the definition of mine was stupidly sentimental, which didn't really cause me to like break down. I just came to the conclusion, well, I must not be a writer. This isn't my thing, and and I went the path of speaking. Um, but as I was preaching week in week out, you know, most Sundays I'm in the pulpit. Uh, I started caring more and more about the words I was using and the phrases, and so reading was impacting me in just more significant ways. And as words became more important to me, I started manuscripting my sermons. I sort of moved away from, you know, a lot of people were working towards fewer and fewer notes, and I sort of did the reverse. I went to, I was writing three or 4,000 word sermons every single week. And that really built this this interest in writing that then allowed me to entertain the idea, well, maybe I could do this in articles, maybe I could do this in books, and began my interest in, in this path towards writing. And also leads into podcasting. I don't know if you do this, but I found that for my solo episodes, they kind of end up getting delivered as a sermon. I end up having, you know, three, 4,000 words of notes going into the episode. And I don't read it necessarily straight from my notes, but I, I really do kind of try to hash it out ahead of time. And I'm like, I'm like presenting a sermon on book marketing. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if this is a thing, but I, I don't know if you do it that way, but I, I do feel like it's a similar kind of communication technique. Yeah, I would find myself in the pulpit and maybe it was out of insecurity, but I would say something and I wasn't confident I had said it correctly or that the audience was getting it. And so I would try saying it again and then maybe I would come back to it. And I realized I was just spinning my wheels because I didn't trust the words I was using. And so writing for me became a way of making sure I was saying it the way I wanted to say it and then trusting that the audience had had received it, had gotten it. Um, and, and then it just kind of grew from there into really enjoying that process of writing and enjoying the process of editing. I mean, that's as much of it as the writing itself. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot in publishing about whether you're indie or traditional or a pantser, you know, you write by the seat of the pants or you write from an outline. But another distinction between authors is there are writers who speak and speakers who write. And, you know, very legitimate approaches. Uh, but I would say we're both speakers who write, where we came to it first from the speaking world and then we had to learn writing. Whereas other people, they learn the writing first and then the speaking uh, grows out of that. Yeah, for sure. I see sometimes in my writing things that I do speaking that I've learned don't work as well in writing. So I've learned to recognize it's okay in a first draft, they show up that way, some repetition or alliteration that in print is just a little too much where it might not be in speaking. So you learn to recognize those things and edit them out. But I think you're right. I probably write from my speaking. Yeah, I've really learned the difference because I take my podcast episodes on my other podcast, Novel Marketing, and they all turn into blog posts. And so we have to then edit that kind of four audio version of the blog post into something that's more friendly for text. And you're exactly right. There's alliteration repetition that's really powerful and spoken. Uh, it doesn't work so well when people are scanning a blog and you have things like images and bullets and headings uh, to work with. But uh, to t- take us back to your story. So you're getting into um, delivering sermons. At what point do you start to be like, you know what? I think I could write a book. I think I should write a book. Yeah, that question itself, I think, is one a lot of people struggle with, and me too. I didn't know if I could do it. I had uh, spent some time after seminary writing what I thought was a book. Um, really, I think I was just trying to flesh out voice, and, and it was a good exercise because it clarified my thinking, but it was not publishable. It wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know who I was as far as a writer at the time. Um, and so I'd kind of set that all aside. Wait, real quick. I'm going to stop you right there, because that, what you just experienced, is pretty much everyone's experience with their first book 
book. Except some people think that that first book really should be you know, like their masterpiece that they're known by. And it's like, your first book is therapy. Your first yeah. book is to help you learn how to write a book. Well, and it's getting out your influences. Like it just was a weird mashup of the things that I had read and liked. And it was not, it wasn't genuine yet. It wasn't me. And so um, I started, I preached a sermon through the book of Judges. And there was something about the Samson stories that really stood out to me. And sometimes in preaching, I'll have this feeling of, you know, every week I've got to do another sermon. And you feel like you got 75% of the way there. And that's dealing with Samson in, uh, uh, excuse me, in particular. I felt like, man, there's more to this passage than I'm able to flesh out in this Sunday. And I wanted to explore that. So I started taking some notes and exploring what that would look like as a book. Um, and I knew enough at the time to know that the traditional publishing process is I need to put together a book proposal and I need to sell the concept to an agent and a publisher and then write the book. But I did take the sort of unconventional approach of, of writing the book first. And part of that was I needed to prove to myself I could do it. I needed less pressure of other people's expectations. I needed to sort of, you know, a lot of that first draft never, never got finished, I cut things, I redid things. It was really me trying to learn. And as you pointed out, I mean, this is really my second time working through this, trying to figure it out. But I did finish that. I, I worked with a writing coach, Mick Silva, who's now at Zondervan. I hired just on the side to kind of help me for accountability and just general guidance. And I did. I finished that uh, that manuscript and was a big, if nothing else, had proved to myself I was capable of writing a full-length book. Yeah, so now you've written the full-length book, and it's all gravy from there, right? You know, the money starts flowing, you start getting millions of <laughs> yeah. readers. What happens next? Well, I uh, uh, I thought in my mind, as you sort of opened up in the introduction, I had sort of a two-year time frame in my brain. I thought, you know, it's going to take me a year to write this book, um, which I'm pretty good at discipline of setting my own deadlines. I knew I could do that. And I thought it's going to take me a year to get the agent, figure out the book contract, and then, you know, hopefully having no clue how long from the process of signing contract publishing the actual book being released is. I uh, I thought kind of two years was my timeline. So I, um, I did. Everybody has different hurdles. I found an agent fairly quickly. Um, I was grateful about that. But she was really frank with me. She said, I think we need to spend a year continuing to let your audience grow on the Pastor Writer podcast. And I think we need to spend some time really honing in the book proposal because uh, what I had wasn't wasn't that strong. I mean, she was really just looking at the writing. And so that was hard to hear, but we spent an entire year just grow, continuing to grow the audience and really honing the proposal for that book. It's amazing. Platform really is important. And part of the reason that platform is important, and this is kind of an epiphany I've had very recently, is that um, a lot of publishing companies, they're not run by Christians. Uh, they, they're run by secular organizations for which the Christian arm is just an imprint. Uh, and even the Christian companies that are owned by Christians, they aren't run by evangelical Christians. They're not Christians who um, have a conservative orthodoxy. Some of them are, but a lot of them are, you know, they don't go to church. The staff of these companies, they don't believe in hell. They're not the kind of Christian that are the typical reader of Christian books, right? Uh, there's a very certain kind of person who reads Christian books and, and who visits a Christian bookstore, and they tend to be very conservative um, theologically. And yet often the people who are running the Christian publishing companies aren't. And because they're not, they don't understand the reader. 
and they don't know what's going to resonate with the reader or not. And so what they need you to do as the author is to demonstrate that you've got resonance with the audience they don't understand. And they need you to do that by demonstrating, look, I have this big email list. I have this big podcast following. I have thousands of people who come to hear me speak because they can't predict what's going to hit or not because they fundamentally don't understand the market that they're developing books for. Yeah, and I spent a big, to that point, I spent a big part of that year also placing articles, so which was something relatively new to me and a skill I had to learn as well, just trying to network with those editors, trying to place articles, um, which was part of building the platform, but also just kind of proving chops within the community and building up some of those bylines. Um, but the thing, the big hurdle for me in that year of just working on the proposal everybody kept talking to me about concept and I thought I understood, well, the book has a concept. Here's the concept for the book and here's who's going to read it. But that concept was not clear enough. And I did not understand how important concept was for a new writer because if I think about most of the books I was reading, let's just take an example. Um, uh, Tim Keller, if a Tim Keller book, in some ways, Tim doesn't have to have a concept for a book because he is the concept. Tim Keller can write a book on prayer and everyone will read it because he's the concept and they want to see what he has to say about prayer. But if Chase Replogle writes a book on prayer, that means absolutely nothing to anyone because I'm not a concept to anyone. Therefore, the book itself has to be the concept. There has to be something interesting enough about the book concept that would make somebody pick it up because nobody's going to pick it up because my name's on the cover as a first-time author. It took me a long time to understand how important that was probably also because look i love books like mere christianity by c.s lewis or some of eugene peterson's writing and well the truth is i'm not going to i can't write a book called mere christianity i can't write i don't have that name recognition so figuring out how to create a concept for a first book as a new author was a big hurdle it, it took me a while to process and understand well, even c.s lewis couldn't write a book mere christianity right that wasn't his first book his first book wasn't very good, probably shouldn't have been published, right? Nobody reads Pilgrim's Regress. Even Lewis fans are like, eh, it's not his best uh, best work. Yeah, Eugene Peterson has one called, his first book was Like Do Your Youth, and it was a book for parents who are raising teenagers to help instill faith in teenagers. And it's like out of print, you can't find it. It's it's the same thing, you know, nobody, it, <laughs> that was his first. So some, right. some pressure taken off for your first as well. That's right. Although it's harder now if your first is not successful to get that second shot. Back in the day, there were so few people writing books because the act of writing a book on a typewriter was so difficult that just having completed a manuscript meant that you had a chance with publishing houses. Now, the writing, the physical act is so much easier that the later steps are, are harder uh, as a result. Um, but you know, it takes a few books to develop and become a big name author. So when we say a big name author, what do we mean? Well, if you look at a uh, author, let's say Stephen King, right? When he writes a book, the font of his name is bigger than the font of the title of the book because what people are buying is a Stephen King book. But you have to earn that status. You have to already be famous for your name to be worth giving the font treatment. For most authors, especially when they're first starting off, you want the title of the book to have the strongest font weight, right? You want that to be the biggest font size, the boldest text on the cover. It's the first thing people see because that's what's going to get people's attention. And and so that's what you're, exactly what you're talking about. And it's a hard thing to hear. You're not Stephen King. You're not, you know, insert, you know, celebrity pastor or celebrity writer. Uh, but you can get there, but you have to be faithful in the little things. You have to be faithful with the small books 
first. So walk us through kind of you developing the discipline of writing. How did you develop that endurance to keep going even when times got hard? I think part of it was there was always a next stepped goal. There wasn't just, I think if your goal is to have a published book, I, it's going to take so long to get there. I think you've got to set some goals before that one that are that are real achievements. You know, for me, finding an agent, well, first, finishing a manuscript was a huge achievement. Finding an agent was a huge achievement. Figuring out how to now take that manuscript and turn it into a, a concept with a proper book proposal, uh, that was an achievement. Like, that was the next goal. And you just know uh, it's these are bigger bigger hurdles than you think that they are. You've just got to have that perseverance of, I'm, I'm not right now thinking about that book and when it comes out and the speaking tour. And I know that's where your mind wants to go, right? The sales and the curriculum I'm going to build off of it and the podcast interviews I'm going to do from it. You've really got to get yourself focused on what is that next goal and how do I do it as well as I possibly can instead of just seeing it as a hurdle I've got to get over to get to that big thing that I'm actually interested in. That's right. And, and an advantage of having a platform and developing a platform is that it allows you to start ministering to people right away. And, and a mistake I see a lot of authors make is they're like, I need to write a book so that I can minister to people. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like your book comes out of the ministry that you're doing. And the fact that you're a, po- a pastor and the fact that you have a podcast means that every week you get the opportunity to share your ideas with people, to bless people with your words. And the book comes out of that. And you're not like, oh, if only I had a book, then I could finally tell people what I think. It's like, no, start telling people now. Be helpful now. Be faithful where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Because you never know when unexpected things are going to happen. Speaking of which, tell us what happens next in your story. So you get an agent and you finish your manuscript. What happens uh, next? Yeah, so we honed the book proposal. We started sending that book proposal out and we got really good feedback. We would hear from editors. We actually had a couple of calls. Um, they loved the writing. They felt good about the concept, but um, you know, everybody's going to hate hearing this. They had concerns over the platform being big enough. And you know, at the time, my podcast had, um, you know, I was getting a thousand downloads a week, something like that. I mean, it was not, it was not nothing. Um, and I had at the time I had, you know, probably about 1500 names on my email uh, list. And we were speaking with some medium to large size Christian publishers and they felt like they could see the trajectory of where the platform was going. But basically they all said, no, they all said, you know, no, with the asterisk of why don't you come back to us in another year or so? And let's see where the platform numbers were. So, I mean, to, to put it in perspective, here I've dedicated this time. I have a manuscript. I found an agent. She wants to take a whole year just to work on the book proposal and the platform. I finally think I've crossed that line and we're ready to pitch. And then the publishers say, why don't we give it another year to continue growing the platform? Which we did. We um, I waited another year. I continued just to work on more articles and the podcast and um, building the email list specifically. And after that year, I thought I had finally reached the, uh, the the pinnacle of it. I had two offers from publishers, one of which was Zondervan. And we signed a contract. And um, one of the things they asked me to do that was another big kind of unexpected turn in this process was they asked me to take the book I had written on Samson and they wanted me to condense it down to one to two chapters of a book and 
do what I had done with Samson to prop to five men of the Bible. So they had reworked the concept to try to make it uh, the keyword a bigger concept to more male readers. And so uh, it was basically a rewrite. I mean, even to try to take the manuscript I had and force it into two chapters, I rewrote those two chapters. So, you know, here we are two years down the road after thinking I was going to get a contract, I sign a contract, and now it's going to be an entire another year of writing a new manuscript for what they had pitched me on. Wow. So so now you go, you have a totally different concept. And I will say, if I were pitching your platform, you know, a thousand downloads a month, these are a thousand pastors, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had that conversation. Yeah. I would really lean into that. It's like these are influential people. Yeah, not not anyone. Like these are folks that have the ability, if they like the book, to mention it from the pulpit, to recommend yep. it as curriculum in small groups or in and ministry breakouts. And so so now you have to you're not throwing it away, but you're kind of throwing away a lot of it. And now you're writing basically what is now a third book. So Yeah, now honestly I got excited about the possibility for a couple of reasons. Well, number one, the Zondervan opportunity was was seemed like such a good opportunity. Um they were excited about it. So that, you know, obviously just for that door to open felt like such a blessing, felt like such an opportunity. I was excited to sort of uh fulfill what they were looking for. And number two, I, I knew I was a better writer. I mean, remember I've spent two years writing articles interviewing people about writing, building the podcast. So I knew if it was a hard decision, hard to imagine turning away on your back on that work you've done, but I knew I could do something better. I knew I knew more about writing. I was a better writer. I knew more about my own voice. And so I uh, I jumped into that manuscript pretty intensely. I had a, a plan for, for getting it done ahead of the deadline and started working. And I got about, this is all during COVID, I got about um, two-thirds of the way through that uh, that manuscript. And I remember it very clearly. My agent uh, sent me a text message and said, can I call you? And I thought, well, this is unexpected. So I jumped on the phone and she said, uh, I don't have any way to tell you this other than very frankly, but I received an email from Zondervan uh, from their legal office that due to COVID and a shifting of priorities, they've decided to terminate the contract on the project. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, to put it in perspective, I'm writing a whole new book because of what they've been looking for. And now all of a sudden I'm standing with no contract and two thirds of the way through the book. And, uh, you know, it was a lot to process. I knew right away though, I had to keep writing. I had the momentum. I had the idea. I had to finish that manuscript, even knowing now there wasn't a contract in place for it. So what did that feel like, getting that news that uh, everything that you've done has now come to nothing? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, look, I'm, I am a Christian. I felt that this was a calling from the beginning. Um, I've, in everything I've done, I've tried to do it faithfully to what God has called me to do. Um, I'm not trying to be a celebrity. I'm not trying to be famous. I'm not trying to make a bunch of cash. This really is a part of what I feel like is who I am as a minister. So I tried to recognize there was some good. You know, Zondervan spent a lot of time investing in the concept for this book and really helping me figure out how to tackle it for a bigger audience. I still had that. They had freed me to work on the project. Um, I was making good headway on it. I felt like it was a good enough idea and book. The platform was growing. I felt like we could land something else, but it was a little disorienting. It was a little, um, you know, you. Uh, I think I took a few days break from the writing and just did something <laughs> totally else and tried not to think about it. Um, but at some point, I mean, I don't want to sound repetitive, but it just, this was the next thing. I just had to keep going, you know, okay, well, what, what's the next goal now? So what, what's the work to be done in front of me right now? Because that's really all I can do at any point in this process is just that, that work actually in front of me. 
And in that case, it was to go ahead and just finish. <laughs> we'll deal with the, the lingering question of what publisher next, you know, down the road. I just need to finish. Now, did you get to keep your advance? Like, what are the ramifications of a publisher pulling the plug on a book before it's finished? You know, it's uh, this is a complex conversation that, once again, I'll plug why it's good to have an agent. I was very thankful <laughs> that I was not navigating all this on my own. Um, they allowed me to keep the half of the advance that's normally paid on signing. Um, but there wouldn't be the other half of the advance that uh, would have come when the manuscript was submitted. Um, you know, this was not an advance that was going to change my life or allow me to quit my job or do anything else. But, you know, we had planned some things around it and had made some decisions on when we expected that coming. So there was that challenge. You know, it, it did have some impact on us. Um, but I just, again, I just believed this isn't the end of the road. Everybody, you know, I was talking to my agent included was saying, you know, hang in there. This is just another bump. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to place it eventually. So I just kept writing, kept working on, I, that's the one thing I knew I could do. I could continue to make the book better. So I just kept working on that. I mean, one way to see this is you've been given money that would allow you to go indie if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, know, you you got the, you got to keep the advantage. You know, it was only half in advance, but uh, you also got the rights back for your book. Yeah, and we had that conversation. I you know the I talked very specifically with my agent about is this is this a sign that I should take that path? Is this an opportunity? And and that's going to be different for everyone. You know, we had a long conversation about it. We from the very beginning tried to approach my decisions long term. I'm trying to think about a career in writing and not just get hung up on one book, one idea. I'm trying to make the best long term decisions. And so again, I know it sounds like a broken record, but we were like, let's give it a little more time. Let's, you know, finish the book. (laughs) Let's go pitch it to some other publishers. Uh, We're in the middle of COVID. Everybody was sort of like terrified. I mean, the reason Zondervan had cut the contract is because they were cutting contracts. So, you know, it wasn't a great time to go pitch other publishers. So once again, let's give it a few months and then let's uh, start pitching and see where we are again. And so that was our plan. Yeah, because it was either on this podcast or my other podcast. I was like, if I were running a publishing company, I would scrap all of our books Um, because people are changing, at least for fiction. I would scrap all the books because the events of the pandemic and the lockdown and and all of the drama around that um, have changed readers. And what that means is that what will resonate with readers is different now than what it was a year ago. You know, there's a reason why we don't go back and read very many older books. There's a few books that are classics and are able to resonate with multiple generations, but that's a one in a million, one in 10,000 book. You know, people are like, oh, they don't make it like they used to. It's like, well, a lot of that stuff they used to make is gone now because it wasn't any good. The stuff that survived is good, right? That stuff, they don't make it like they used to. But some of the things from today will last. And what's true with toasters is also true with novels and true with nonfiction books. And uh, even an author who writes classics like C.S. Lewis has books that people don't read regularly, right? And my guess is uh, of all the people listening to the show, maybe one has read uh, Pilgrim's Regress in the last year. (laughs) Maybe none of you. Uh, In fact, if you're that one person who's read Pilgrim's Regress. Email me and let me know what you think (laughs) of of, uh, Lewis's book. And um, and so in in a way, it's a a good opportunity because it allows you to reconnect yourself with what people are feeling now. The kinds of pains that we're feeling are very different, right? It's the... Um, challenge for fiction, and I really feel like the the plots that will resonate are man against society type plots. Right? There's a reason why 1984 was one of the best selling books of 2020. 
because people were looking for a good man against society story and they couldn't think of one, right? Because that's not the kind of story that was told very often before the pandemic. It happened, right? We Of all the Marvel movies, we get one that's man against society, Captain America, Winter Soldier, which is perhaps the greatest of all the Marvel films. If you go back, you'd be like, man, this is a really good, uh, really resonant <laughs> story still. Um, but it, it's less common. And, and I think the same thing is happening um, for nonfiction. And, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Chase, but uh, the big question I think a lot of people are asking is what does Christianity look like now that we have accepted that church is a, not an essential function, right? When we closed our churches down uh, during the height of the lockdown, we admitted to ourselves and to everyone else that church wasn't essential, that going to church on Sunday, not an essential thing, that uh, it's more risky to get, a vi- get the virus than it is to get isolated from the body. And that's something we're going to have to grapple with. And, and what does Christianity look like now in a post-admission of non-essentiality um and so uh what are your thoughts on that and like are you tweaking your story or your book now to kind of be resonant with a post-pandemic readership like what does that look like i think that's a really good thought i um looking back on that first book so the sort of samson book i originally worked on it was a book primarily about identity written for millennial men mainly um i I don't think those those questions about identity have been really significant culturally over the last 10 years i don't think in this moment they're as critical as some of the other questions people are asking i agree completely As, as somebody who just lived through a terrible winter storm and like crises and no food in the grocery store store can't drive on the roads no electricity no water you know what you're not asking yourself in the midst of that I wonder who my what my identity is who yeah, am who i in am christ I? right that's the kind of question you ask when times are good <laughs> that is not a question you ask while in a trench there's been a lot of books on identity written since then like i think the topic's been addressed actually pretty well so i do feel like some of the things i was writing about look i've grown up from those topics everyone else has too um this new book and i think to your point it's not that every book every nonfiction book or every fiction book right now needs to be pandemic related. I actually personally am kind of tired of reading about the pandemic. Like I'm not looking for another book explaining the pandemic. Um, But I do think we are asking different kinds of questions right now. And we're dealing with different kinds of questions in our Christian communities. And I think your book has to be in that world. So it doesn't mean that you have to even mention, I don't think in the manuscript I have completed right now, I mentioned the pandemic once, but I'm definitely dealing with nihilism and disillusionment. And I'm dealing with, is it possible to to be better, to get better as a man? I think those are the kinds of questions we're asking right now more than who am I, you know, what has God called me to do? What is my identity? What, where does your identity come from? I do think we're asking a different set of questions and you should be responding to those, speaking into those. I, I very much agree. And I'm really glad you underlined that. Cause when I say people have changed because of the pandemic, I'm not saying, Oh, you have to write about the pandemic in your book. And it's the difference between writing a book about Y2K which becomes a very dated book that no one's going to read in 2021 or 2001 and writing a book that speaks to the fears that Y2K um, surfaced, which is what Left Behind did, right? Left Behind had nothing to do with Y2K and yet Left Behind was very successful because it came out in the years leading up to 
2000, people were nervous about the future. What are the bad things that the future is going to have? And, they, um, and Left Behind spoke to those kind of core fears that people had. And yeah, if you're dealing about, you know, cancel culture and man against society, Samson dealt with issues like that. Right? He was constantly in conflict with his society. Um, you know, it's maybe his defining characteristic is that he didn't fit, right? He wasn't a good Jew. He wasn't a good Philistine. He wasn't a good subject. He wasn't a good leader. <laughs> He's just, just like, but yet he was given divine powers. Really fascinating uh, character. I can't wait to read your book when it comes out. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, and to that point, a little bit to the timeline, I, uh, as I had sort of left off, I, I'm sitting and waiting for another contract. We did start pitching and uh, had a, a couple of opportunities come up with publishers. I have a, a couple of offers and one of them that we're very close to signing. And uh, again, just to put more time perspective into the conversation, because it is already late in 2021 when it comes to these things, we uh, the possible final publication date for this book, once I sign, will be March of 22. So over a year away. So if you notice the sort of pattern, it's every hurdle is another year and then another year. And uh, I went back the other day out of curiosity. I knew we were going to be talking about this. And I found some of the very first notes that I had written on Samson for that manuscript. And from the time that I started writing those notes to when the book will come out in March of 22 will be just over six years that I've been working on the project. So the advice I've heard you say many times before about a five-year author plan, uh, I think, is is more accurate than I would have liked it to have been when I first started. Yeah, when we talk about the five-year plan, people are like, oh, that's so long. And I'm like, that's the expedited path. <laughs> the path most authors walk is five years of kind of bashing their head against the wall, and then five years of progress, and then after 10 years, uh, they really see a breakthrough. So I'm so where you're at right now is um, that the new version of the book that's five heroes uh, of the Bible. Yeah, so basically what I did is I took Samson as one. Uh, the new book is called, uh, the working title is The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Being a Better Man. And it uses, um, actually it takes Shakespeare's seven stages of a man and it pulls the five middle ones out, the ages of sort of maturing and growing, and looks at each of them as an, a masculine instinct that men experience and then uh, combines a biblical character to explore that instinct and how it can lead to destruction or by faith can be matured into something useful, something of virtue. Very cool. So, yeah, what does it mean to be a man in 2021 or 2022, right? That's, and more specifically, what does it mean to be a Christian man? Yeah, and the way it fits into this moment is, is, is it possible for men to get better? Because I think culturally some of the questions we've been asking is, uh, we've told men that they're doing things wrong, and we've seen them rebel against us telling them we've done th- they're doing things wrong, and there's sort of two groups that you're either toxic or you need to indulge it, and I'm trying to explore the possibility, well, does faith offer a way of actually maturing, of becoming more like Christ through these masculine instincts, not necessarily rejecting them, but maturing them into something better through Christ? So yeah, I think it's a part of this broader conversation we're having right now. And I love that thinking that you're going through because while culture shifts, you know, everything we see has come before, there are timeless truths and how those timeless truths resonate in different ways, uh, depending on where we're at. And, you know, we just came out of a season where identity was the thing, right? There's probably a dozen books, two dozen popular books on identity. And uh, I think that you really dodged a bullet because writing the very best identity book at the end of the identity phase um, would not have set you up well for your career 
because people have already read a book on identity. They probably already worked through it. That's another thing is that as a church, we are dealing with different besetting sins as a church, right? Like 200 years ago, the main thing we were working through as a church is can you be a Christian and a slaveholder? Like, how do, can you be a Christian and put up with other Christians in your church owning slaves? Like, is that an okay thing? What do the passages in the Bible say about slavery? Does that apply? Like, those are big questions that we really wrestled with for a long time. And you know what? We're not wrestling with those questions anymore. <laughs> we've come to answers and we're, and, you know, hopefully we've settled it. You know, the, the church has ended slavery at least twice. Um, two or three times we did it in 600 ad we did it again in the 1800s i think we may have done it again in the 1200s yeah we did because um six, 600 we ended slavery of fellow christians we're like nope no more of that 1200s like no slavery's bad altogether and then 1800s we were like yeah no actually for reals this time <laughs> um but but we're dealing with different things and um so let's let's briefly kind of glance into the future of your career if we can and what are the i would love to if you have any <laughs> yeah. if you have any insight let me know so <laughs> well no I'm, I, I really more want to kind of let people kind of into the, how authors think and mm-hmm. it's like what are the and how pastors think what are the challenges that you see uh your congregation facing uh, the, the big questions that uh, the real stumbling blocks uh, that they're struggling with and what do you see kind of in your next book you know in addressing those questions yeah, um, really big and hard questions. I mean, um, I'm going to give you sort of what's on my brain, but these things are constantly changing. I'm constantly reading and having conversations and 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 trying to figure out that very question. What comes next? What am I interested in next? What questions need to be addressed? Um, I mean, obviously, we're still trying to figure out how to respond to the proper racial reconciliation in the nation. That's um, there's been so many great books. There's so many good conversations happening, but I just sense we're not done. It's not, I mean, there's a long ways to go on those conversations. I think the, uh, the way technology is impacting ministry is we're just scratching the surface on. So as more and more churches are online uh, questions about what is community and what does it mean uh, to be a part of a church? What is a church? I think we're, those things are really up. (laughs) People are discussing them. They're up for grabs. Things that may be, weren't before are. So I think we're going to continue to to deal with that. I think as we move into more and more uh, a post-Christian society where, I mean, I'm seeing this already, that people bring no biblical knowledge uh, into their experience of the church, where used to you could assume certain things, you cannot assume those things anymore, that I think we're going to have to figure out how the gospel is presented in this post-Christian world in a new way. Um, I think, you know, it will be interesting to see. One of the areas for me I'm not sure about is the way faith and politics works, or at least if you want to broaden that faith and engagement in culture and world, particularly around power. Uh, I know there's been a lot of writing on that. A lot of publishers rushed writing on that, trying to capitalize in the last 12 months. But uh, I, I think some of it felt like it was just for that moment. And I think there's a lot more conversation to have around that in, in the months to come. Um, and I do think, um, look, I live in Springfield, Missouri. I can say I don't feel like I faced persecution for my faith, but I do feel the acceptance of my faith uh, within community changing. There's something different about it. There's something suspect about it, not necessarily here, but even more largely. We're going to have to figure that out, Um, and I don't know enough. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know enough to know what that's going to look like, and I know in some parts of the country that that suspicion around Christianity and faith is worse than it is where I am. It's better in some places, but the church as a whole is going to have to navigate faith is not 
in favor. It's not it's not an assumption anymore. Uh, and I think there'll be a lot that'll have to be navigated there. And then on top of it, um, there's always going to be a place for helping people practice their faith in the context of their own actual life, because you can, so much of Christian writing can become so, it's about society, and it's about culture, and it's about challenges that, that we can't lose sight of the fact that, look, I'm a father, <laughs> I'm, I'm a husband, uh, I live in a certain community with neighbors, and I've got to figure out how my, fla- my faith is not just an abstract idea within society, it's lived out in those places. And so books that help us figure out how to navigate that personally as an individual believer, I think, will, will continue to be important. Yeah, those, I, those are a lot of r- really interesting topics and things that, you know, as you continue, this is one of the advantages of being a pastor. And if you're not a pastor, why having a podcast and having opportunities to interact with potential readers is so important? Because you need to know the questions that people are asking. And uh, the nice thing about being a pastor is that you get those questions whether you want them or not. <laughs> so, Yeah, a lot of my writing for, towards men comes out of a lot of the young men that I've pastored that are in my life. And I, I, a lot of the older men in my life, I see these different instincts, these different stages that they're in, and I see the different issues they're wrestling through. And, and yeah, a big part of my writing comes out of just trying to answer those things in ways that maybe just in a Sunday sermon I'm not able to fully explore. My first viral blog post that I ever wrote was uh, titled, What is a Christian Man? And it was literally just me and somebody um, I was in a discipleship relationship with. We just sat down and kind of brainstormed a list of attributes for what a Christian man looked like. And I was a sophomore in college. I didn't know anything. And yet I ranked on Google for the phrase Christian man for years. <laughs> it didn't help me find a wife, by the way. Uh, no, no uh, Christian women do not look on Google for Christian man. I was I was there ranking number one. <laughs> um, but uh, w- one of the things you mentioned briefly was uh, the church and technology. And a technology that I have not heard anyone grappling with that has had huge impacts on the church is microphones public address systems. Think about how different church is now with microphones to talk into than it was before. You know, things that weren't really questions before became questions now that people are um, amplified. One, uh, power gets more concentrated, right? Somebody can have a church of 10,000. Somebody can have a church of 100,000. Couldn't do that. It was technologically incapable. It also made the question of the role of women in church much bigger deal, right? Because now women who may not have had the volume to address a large crowd now with the aid of a microphone can. And um, you know, and I think part of the reason why it was never questioned was that it benefited the people who were most often most likely to fight new technology, right? Who are the people who fight new technology? The older people in the church, right? But a microphone allows them to hear better. <laughs> so why wouldn't they want a public address system? And I'm not saying microphones are bad. Um, you know, talking into a microphone right now. But I, I am saying that I would love to hear a conversation of has the microphone had a universally good impact on the church? What would church look like if we chose to not have microphones? How would it be different? What would it be better or worse? You know, how um, has it changed the church for the worse, right? Jesus didn't use microphones. Paul didn't use microphones. Uh, they were able to talk to big crowds. Uh, I'm not saying, Chase, you should write your book about that, but I'm saying as a, as a Christian, this is a thing that I, I wonder about, right? Has the microphone been good for church or not? Yeah, well, and you're not the only person right now who's wondering about 
I mean, maybe the biggest way of putting that is, is the way we're doing church the right way? Or is there other ways? Is it, are those other ways new inventions? Or are they a sort of a move back to a church as it once was, a sort of restoration type movement? Those questions around what is the church, I think, are, are going to we need more books on them. I need more books on them. And I, you know, as, especially as we've been seeing a lot of prominent and celebrity type pastor failures, I think people are having questions about what is a pastor and what is the place of power and authority and, and, uh, you know, how should I be relating to well-known Christians? Uh, those are all things that you're seeing. And on a, a lot of ways, as a writer, you should be really plugged in to the periodicals that your audience is reading too. I mean, I'm all over every blog and every, you know, magazine that's related to ministry and church. And because that's where you start that the early ideas are starting to get flashed out there on blogs, on podcasts, in articles. Uh, those things will eventually become oftentimes by the very people writing them books that they're writing about. But that ongoing conversation, you'll pick up on it in those places before you'll pick up on it on books because, you know, to the point of this conversation, oftentimes books lag three, four, five years behind those conversations just because of the nature of writing and publishing them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You've got to be listening to the music if you want to be in tune, right? It's like, oh, so-and-so is tone deaf. It's like, well, you've got to be listening to the music. And in writing, that means reading the articles, listening to the podcasts, knowing who are the influential voices. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, right? Your best-selling book could be disagreeing with the voices that are the prominent voices that you're seeing or, or maybe not disagreeing with them completely, but pointing out some blind spot or you know, bringing up, like, but what about this? Or here's a passage of scripture I think you're ignoring and it changes everything and you're like oh but you know that's already been done it's like it needs to keep being done there's always new generations that need to be reintroduced to um, passages of scripture and i feel like from era to era we tend to emphasize certain passages over other passages and um, i would love to have the bible gateway statistics on like what verses are the most popular verses and what, what chapters what books are getting almost completely ignored and you know what how what kind of impact does that have yeah, and the real opportunity, too, is if you can know that, if you can know what questions people are asking, and you can know where there are places that have not been mined yet, if I could, for answering those questions, then you've really got something interesting, right? Like, if you if you know, boy, we have really, as a church, neglected this book, these passages, these stories, and I actually think in an interesting way they address these questions that everyone's asking right now, then you have something really interesting, something that is not being said yet and I think uh, is is a, a great concept, can be. Yeah, that that's the way to think about it. Now, for people who are wanting to keep up and know what happens next with your story, to know if you get this contract uh, with this publisher or curious about your book uh, when it comes out, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. It's a roller coaster, so who knows? I maybe who knows? Maybe I'm six <laughs> more years down the road. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, the podcast I do put out monologue episodes, usually letting people know kind of those milestones and where the book is. So pastorwriter.com is the website. Um, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can just search Pastor Writer and find it. Uh, and I do for those listeners who are most interested in writing. Uh, the the conversations on the podcast are often about writing, but they're also about books and the authors who are writing those books and those thoughts. If you really just want as much writing content as possible. I have an insider Facebook group, so it's pastorwriter.com uh, slash insider, and it'll take you to the Facebook group where you can request to join. And I'm usually in there. Uh, usually I do a Facebook Live once a week. I do some special interviews in there, and it's a great place to ask questions. Uh, there's a growing community in there of people, and some really good, some good writers in there, some editors. It's a great place if you really want the sort of most in-depth writing. I actually have a video in there where I covered all of this timeline stuff and broke it down in a Facebook Live. 
What a great cancel-proof way of telling people about your community, right? If you get kicked off of Facebook today, you can point pastorwriter.com slash insider to somewhere else. <laughs> yep. So uh, this this uh, one final pro tip of something. One of the things I like about Chase and why I keep bringing it back uh, on the podcast, despite the fact you still have a book out. Normally, I'm like, hey. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? It's like, how podcast. do I call myself a writer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but you're doing a lot of things right along the journey. And I uh, and we didn't talk about this, but you also are a webmaster. I think that's how you're supporting yourself as a pastor. And so your website's a good example of a, a website done well. Somebody who, who knows what they're doing and puts a lot of care uh, into the website. And the way that you're approaching this is the right way. And even though you're not seeing the results yet, that doesn't mean that you're not approaching it correctly. And sometimes people can approach things with the wrong method and get quick results because of serendipity or you know somebody famous recommends them but i think that the way that you're going about this kind of slowly and deliberately building a platform slowly and deliberately getting to know the people that you're writing to uh, learning to love them better learning to listen to them so that you're writing to the questions that they're asking instead of trying to find people asking the questions that you've written the answer to right this totally different mindset a lot of people they write the book and then they try to find the readers for the book and it's like no that that's not the christ-like way to do it if you want to be a leader, you have to serve. You got to first start with love of your readers and then write your book out of that love. Write a book for your readers rather than trying to find readers for your book. Well, and it's been fun. I should throw that out too, because it's not just, look, if if the book never got published, I think I would still do the podcast. I think I would still continue blogging. Like it's it's become such a part of my life and I enjoy it. And I've gotten to know so many great people through it. I, I really enjoy, um, you know, I don't, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm doing the platform just because I love building a platform, but I really love the podcast. I love the community that's around it, and I would have a hard time walking away from that at this point. And the podcast is ministry. The podcast is blessing people. I mean, sure. you have uh, more people listening to your podcast than you have on a Sunday morning. Yep, true by multiples. Yep. Yeah, and that's true for just about every podcaster, <laughs> um, because there's a lot more pastors than there are podcasts, at least for Christians. Real podcasts. I mean, every church has their sermons that you can download, but that I don't count those. And uh, that that's a really very real ministry, and that's the way to think about platform. The platform is not something you do for your book; it's something that you do for your readers. And it's a, it's a way of blessing your readers. And whether the book happens or not, you're still blessing your readers. You're still following, uh, honoring Christ. And uh, I think that's really good. So if you want to learn more, pastorwriter.com uh, is the website if you want to follow Chase and see what happens next with his journey. See if he gets accepted or if he goes indie. The only way to find out is to tune in next time. Although not on this podcast. You'll have to tune I need in to hire you as a promoter, do intros on my shows. <laughs> yeah, to, to do it. I, you know, I can, I'd be happy to record an intro for your show. Um, and if you're looking for help finding people to connect to when it comes to taking your writing to the next level, the Christian Writers Market Guide is our sponsor. It is the resource if you're wanting to know what agents are out there that are representing books like the one that I'm writing, who out there is editing books, who are the publishers that are looking for my kind of writing. Christian Writers Market Guide is the resource, uh, and it has been around for over 20 years, carefully cultivated uh, year after year and kept up to date. ChristianWritersMarketGuide.com. It also is exists in a dead tree version that you can buy at your local bookstore, or you may even find it at your library. You can request that your library stock and may already have in stock the Christian Writers Market Guide. Chase Ripplogle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Yeah, it's a privilege. Thanks, Thomas, for all the work you do. And um, I'll keep listening every week. So I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.